folks, you literally cannot afford to not be a Michael and Us patron because the Michael and Us Patreon has nothing but excellent exclusive content on it right now. Folks, did you know that we did a Patreon episode about the Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker classic Rush Hour? Did you know that we did a Patreon episode, a full episode, about the Al Gore classic, An Inconvenient Truth? These are just among the literally dozens, hundreds of Patreon-exclusive episodes at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Well, Will is incredibly doing this all in one take. I, I prefer to script these things, but he wanted our promo to be authentic, so here we are. Well, we do often forget to plug uh, on these free episodes uh, our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We have a lot of extra content there, uh, not just one extra episodes a week, but also bonus interviews, all kinds of goodies. I recently spoke to the British writer Richard Seymour about the uh, British media crack-up around the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We've also got a few more great interviews coming up, so if you like the free episodes, give the Patreon a try. And if you're listening to this from somewhere other than the Jacobin Radio podcast feed, Make sure to check out other great podcasts on the Jacobin Radio Network. Now watch this drive. Welcome to Michael and Us. I am Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. At last, we reached the exciting conclusion of our Canadian election coverage. <laughs> Loyal listeners will know that over the last, uh, what, what's it been, two months or so? Five weeks. Five weeks. We've had an election cycle in Canada. Justin Trudeau's liberal government dissolved parliament in hopes of attaining a majority government in parliament. What happened? Well, uh, did they get a majority? <laughs> yeah, I mean the answer is not very much happened. Uh, there was a. a con- I just want to say that I didn't. I didn't look at the results. I've been. I've been waiting all week in suspense <laughs> for you to drop the news to me personally. Yeah, I mean at this point, you know, this has about, about as much dramatic tension as the film we watched this week. <laughs> But I mean, basically, uh, the short answer is that is that nothing happened. We got almost numerically the exact same parliament uh, as we had before. So an election where I don't think anyone came out happy and everybody lost. The conservatives uh, ended up with one or two seats. I'm not I don't think we have quite the final count yet. There's still some mail in ballots being counted, basically around the same number of seats in the vicinity of 120 of 338 seats that they had in the last parliament. They won the popular vote again, but finished 30 or so seats or more uh, than that behind the Liberals. So Aaron O'Toole, having done a kind of uh, centrist gamble during the campaign, is uh, you know now going to have to fight to hang on to his job. The NDP had a net gain of one seat. Very disappointing. Definitely fell short of what some of the polls were suggesting was possible. I've been very depressed with, you know, a few of the results in particular. I had a a close friend who ended up losing her race by about 160 votes, something like that. It was very frustrating to hear all of these stories about people waiting three hours, four hours long to vote. That may sound not that bad to American listeners. I don't know. I've never voted in the United States. But in Canada, you know, usually going to vote is like you walk across the road to your local church or community center, and it takes about five minutes. It's not supposed to take three or four hours. But under the auspices of COVID safety, they closed about half the polling stations. Uh, there were no polling stations on campuses. They, they shuttered the campus vote program. So not great if you're the NDP probably disadvantaged the NDP even more than it disadvantaged uh, the other parties. 
The whole election, I would argue, very bad for Trudeau. I mean, he launched the election calling it the most important one since 1945. And I mean, this was not the election they were expecting or hoping to have the liberals. I mean, they really thought that they were going to be able to say, hey, we gave you guys a two-dose summer. Everyone's going to be really grateful. Everybody loves us. People love Justin Trudeau. We're going to get a majority. Didn't happen. Uh, They lost the popular vote again for the second time in two years to the conservatives um, who beat them by somewhere in the vicinity of two points, although we're still waiting for the final count. So uh, Justin Trudeau has actually beat the record that he set in 2019 for having the slimmest popular mandate in terms of popular vote of any prime minister in Canadian history. So uh, yeah, all around, everybody lost. And uh, yeah, the far right uh, tripled its vote. They didn't win a seat in parliament, but I wrote a piece for Jacobin this week on uh, why they, they probably don't need to win a seat in order to exert a pretty noxious influence on the political mainstream and on the Conservative Party especially. When I say they tripled their vote, I mean, they got 5% instead of the, you know, I don't know, one and a half or 2% or something they got last time. And in many cases, this means that there are seats where, you know, tens of thousands of people voted and they went from getting 300 votes to 900 or something like that. Obviously, they were boosted very heavily by the anti-lockdown and anti-vax stuff. But I don't know, I just have a bad feeling about all of it. I feel like in Canada, we have a tendency to kind of, you know, things that happen in other countries, you know, particularly the United States, often a version of them happens here with several years delay. And, you know, the, the far right in its incarnation here, I mean, I feel like it really represents a lot of, I mean, it reflects and is in sync with many of the kind of reflexes and, and beliefs and attitudes that, you know, you find among the Conservative Party rank and file anyway. I mean, the Maxime Bernier, the leader of the far right party, the PPC, he came within a whisker of winning the Conservative Party leadership in 2017. They have a convoluted voting system of kind of multiple simultaneous ballots, and that's why he didn't become leader. So he stormed off and started his own party. And, you know, the ethos of it, the kind of aesthetic of it is, it's very internet driven, it's very postmodern. You know, it's like they had one candidate who compared vaccine passports to the genocidal residential schools program. They had another candidate, a guy on the East Coast, who, you know, people may have seen, has all these videos on YouTube where he's kind of uh, promoting this technique he calls testicle breathing. So that's the version of the far right we're dealing with here. And uh, yeah, they tripled their vote. You know, Luke, whenever I'm fighting for social justice, I kind of think of myself as like a Jedi, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting for good. It's like you're, you're like Luke Skywalker fighting for social justice. Would you agree with that? Well, until a few hours ago, uh, the answer would have been a definitive yes. But then I read this entirely real, I swear to God, article in, of all places, Scientific American. Uh, it's called Why the Term Jedi is Problematic for Describing Programs that Promote Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Let me tell you, this caused me to re, uh, rethink some things. Now, this is one of those things where you see it, you know, it it pops up in your Twitter feed and you think, well, there's no way this can be real. Or maybe this is like an old thing that's, you know, somebody just, you know, it's gone viral again today for some completely like arbitrary reason. But no, this is published under their inequality uh, tag on Scientific American. And it was published just this week. 
Now, I started reading it, and at the beginning, uh, for the first few sentences, you know, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief, and you think, oh, okay, so they're just, it's just a very clickbaity headline, and this refers to something obscure and sciencey, because it opens, the acronym JEDI has become a popular term for branding academic committees and labeling STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine initiatives, focused on social justice issues. Used in this context, JEDI stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. So I thought, okay, it's just about a science thing. Scroll down a few paragraphs, and I quote, The Jedi are inappropriate mascots for social justice. Although they're ostensibly heroes within the Star Wars universe, the Jedi are inappropriate symbols for justice work. They are a religious order of intergalactic police monks prone to white saviorism and toxically masculine approaches to conflict resolution, violent duels with phallic lightsabers, gaslighting by means of Jedi mind tricks. Wait, wait, hang on. Uh, I just want to interrupt for a second. The white saviorship, what is white in the context of the Star Wars universe? That's what you're thinking about? I'm thinking about gaslighting with Jedi mind tricks. They, that Obi-Wan Kenobi was gaslighting those stormtroopers <laughs> when he said, these aren't the droids you're looking for. But, but no, but no, I mean it. Like, uh, yes, I realize that there are characters, like, of different skin tones of the Star Wars universe, but, like, ha- have there been comparable, like, social structures ascribed to them in the Star Wars universe? Like, did Lando fight in the civil rights movement like on Endor on, or on, whatever Cloud City or whatever planet he's, he lives okay, on. I, I have to go on because there's more. You didn't, didn't even mention the phallic lightsabers <laughs> which I think says more about the author of this piece. The Jedi are also an exclusionary cult, membership to which is partly predicated on the possession of heightened psychic and physical abilities, or force sensitivity. Strikingly, force-wielding talents are narratively explained in Star Wars, not merely in spiritual terms, but also in ableist and eugenic ones. These supernatural powers are naturalized as biology, hereditary attributes, and it, it, whatever. It just goes on and on and on. Like That's that. not true, though. You get midi-chlorians, right? And you can you can collect those, like Pokemons, you know? Well, is it, aren't they, like... Are, <laughs> or am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's funny because, you know, reading this, it's like, if this had been written in a different way and the take was just like, Star Wars is a profoundly conservative fantasy, I would completely agree with it. Yeah. But the way it's written has the exact tone of one of my favorite clickhole articles ever, which is this one, the ability to play as Bowser has made our society more evil. So, you know, I'm just, as I'm reading that out loud, I'm thinking of sentences like, with 1992's release of Super Mario Kart, the first game to allow users to select Bowser as a playable character, our collective moral compass shattered. Overnight, the video game world became a breeding ground for villainy. Suddenly, anyone could plug in an SNES cartridge, look at this, there's a picture of Bowser, and declare, this is me. Even for players who never chose Bowser, the reptilian lord's mere presence on the character selection menu was enough for his pernicious influence to take hold. To include him at all is to tacitly accept Bowser's unconscionable (laughs) politics. You know, I'm reminded of that scene in Clerks, where the two clerks are, like, talking about Star Wars, and they have that very funny conversation about, well, wait, the second Death Star was still under construction, so the Rebel Alliance was killing, like, independent contractors and construction people. Like, that's not very heroic. But, I mean, I mean, in Clerks, that was supposed to be funny, but now somebody would theoretically write a think piece about the Rebel Alliance was being classist when it destroyed the second Death Star, <laughs> and it's not okay. 
I'll just reiterate that I'm with the authors on the idea that Star Wars is kind of a conservative fantasy. I mean, how could it be anything else? You know, it's inspired by, you know, old Westerns and, you know, samurai films from the 1950s and, you know, 1930s, you know, space serials and things like that. But, but updated with the latest in special effects technology. (laughs) (laughs) What I don't share, and and this is kind of why I brought this up, is the kind of weight that they're giving to all of this stuff. And in thinking, you know, what we could possibly say about this beyond just kind of riffing on it and reading that one paragraph, which is just an extraordinary one. I feel like something like this is very emblematic of the way so much cultural criticism is now. There was a very good recent episode of The Jacobin Show where they were talking about popular culture, um, and they brought up this quote uh, from a piece originally in, uh, written in 2018 by Molly Fisher in The Cut. And I'll just read here. Paying attention to the politics of pop culture aligns with a broader interest in ethical consumption of sweatshop-free t-shirts of free-range eggs. Accordingly, some portion of woke criticism falls into the category of consumer advisory. I feel like that very succinctly articulates what is, you know, lingering behind a lot of cultural criticism these days. But I think there is a second component to this kind of thing, which you really see in a piece like this. The big issue that the authors have here is that, you know, our fantasy worlds, you know, Star Wars and things like that are often very conservative. I think that's a thesis that, you know, we've discussed a lot on this podcast, particularly we've talked about, you know, superhero movies and things like that. The problem for me with centering culture in the way that it's so fashionable these days is that I think culture is fundamentally downstream from politics and not the other way around. And I think that the reason there's such a focus on culture, the reason why there's a lot of cultural criticism like this is because so many actual political horizons have been closed off. I was revisiting recently a book by the great scholar Wendy Brown. She writes, as neoliberalism wages war on public goods and the very idea of a public, including citizenship beyond membership, it dramatically thins public life without killing politics. Struggles remain over power, hegemonic values, resources, and future trajectories. The persistence of politics amid the destruction of public life and especially educated public life, combined with the marketization of the political sphere, is part of what makes contemporary politics peculiarly unappealing and toxic, full of ranting and posturing, emptied of intellectual seriousness, pandering to an uneducated and manipulable electorate and a celebrity and scandal-hungry corporate media. So I think what Wendy Brown is saying here, you know, I remember first reading this, I never forgot the sentence that, you know, neoliberalism wages war on public goods, um, you know, without killing politics, you know, all these struggles remain, but they don't really have any kind of genuine political expression, because so much of the actual political sphere has just kind of become marketing. And, you know, mainstream politicians are increasingly just people who, you know, front for what are effectively different branding agencies, they're not really pursuing agendas that are, you know, that discernibly different from one another, at least in a range of areas. And when society has undergone that process for 30 or 40 years, there are fewer and fewer avenues for any kind of genuine political engagement. So of course, you're going to center the stuff that everybody's thinking about, which is culture. And you're going to take concerns about equity and social justice and things like that. And you're going to apply them to fantasy worlds, because the real world is incapable of giving expression to egalitarian demands. Speaking of our fantasy worlds being more conservative than we expect, let's travel back to 2007 through the lens of 2006 in the eerily plausible political, uh, I was going to say satire, uh, mockumentary death of a president. I remember the president said something to me like, is there a problem? I remember saying, uh, no, sir, there's no, there's no problem. 
weren't just rounding up people. We had probable cause. That was a major, major security breach. This time, it, it seemed to me there was real hate. He looked at me and he stepped out. We're just getting reports of a shooting incident. It's not clear if the president himself has been hit, but apparently there are casualties. So, boy, this one was really a kind of return to, I don't know, almost Michael and Us season one, you know, vintage deep dish Michael and Us. No, we were watching this and (laughs) this is a mockumentary, but it is aesthetically indistinguishable from any of the bad documentaries that we saw from 2006. And, you know, just watching it. I almost had like sense memories of being back in Luke's old apartment watching like <laughs> Celsius 41.11 or something. It, it just felt like my life is a Mobius strip. Well, yeah, that's the eternal recurrence of late capitalism. <laughs> you know, we have no future imaginary. So we just turn to culture, which in our case is like documentaries about Howard Dean and, and Michael Moore. Well, I have a lot of memories about this movie, which I have not accessed in well over a decade, <laughs> but which came flooding back. <laughs> there, there's, there's just like deep in your brain a filing cabinet with cobwebs on it with like a post-it note that says (laughs) death of a president I remember that this movie premiered at the 2006 Toronto International Film Festival and when it first appeared on the schedule it was called simply D-O-A-P because they were building some mystery around it. It's like, ooh, what's this incredibly incendiary, controversial movie? And it turned out the premise was this is a documentary imagining the assassination of George W. Bush. And that was, for about like five minutes, intensely controversial. So controversial that major political figures, not the least of them Hillary Clinton, spoke out against this film. I remember when this movie opened theatrically and did not stay open very long, the newspaper ad had these two columns of reviews on it. And, you know, one of the columns was from people who haven't seen Death of a President. And it's like Hillary Clinton saying this should be banned or, you know, various Republican figures. What she said was that anyone would even attempt to profit on such a horrible scenario makes me sick. Well, okay, there you go. What can I say? I disagree. (laughs) And then the other column was people who have seen Death of a President. And it was, you know, laudatory blurbs from critics. Well, they're both wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this movie was not a great success, critically or financially. Although, um, hilariously enough, it did win the International Film Critics Prize at the 2006 Toronto Film Festival. An international panel of film critics voted this best picture. And I can only imagine what those closed-door meetings were like of these people having watched this movie, which is not good. Yeah, Will and I would like to uh, apologize on behalf of Toronto for that. All of these critics said, you know, we should give this because it, it, it's really important that we praise this movie. You know, there's a, there's a funny... I went digging into the archives and found a piece on Torontoist by my pal Matthew Kumar, who, wrapping up that year's Toronto Film Festival, it said, Prize of the International Critics awarded by an international jury to Gabriel Range's Death of a President, quote, for the audacity with which it distorts reality to reveal a larger truth, end quote. And then Matthew writes, This film is terrible. So bad we didn't even bother to cover it. Honestly, the jury here are complete idiots. We are literally embarrassed by the award. (laughs) And, you know, I'm almost tempted to just leave it at that because this movie, 
Um, oh man, this was, you know, we had a very Michael and us season one and two kind of moment uh, <laughs> where, you know, we, we would always do this thing because, you know, we used to watch exclusively bad movies, you know, before we figured out how to shoehorn like Ingmar Bergman into the podcast universe, there would always be a moment in every film where one of us would say, uh, God, how much is left? Can you check? <laughs> and then the other one would caution, let's try to like wait for just 10 or 50 more minutes and then check because we're going to be disappointed. Usually that impulse you know, we, we would succumb to the impulse to check. And then there would always be just, if you predicted 20 minutes, it would always be 40. If you predicted 40, it would be 60. If you predicted 60, it would be 90. Exactly that happened. We thought that there was 20 minutes left in this film and there was somehow like 45. Yeah. Now my memory of this film, which by the way, I saw that I remember I saw this movie for the first time. I downloaded it in my first year university dorm room <laughs> on that on that file sharing service <laughs> that we all had at U of T. Which I feel like we've brought up like 15 times on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess we don't need to reintroduce it, do we? Yeah, not the most interesting remember when. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I like it because it is so niche. <laughs> because, oh man, guys, if you were at U of T in 2007, you know uh, Shakespeare, if you had a Mac, or uh, what was DC it? Plus DC++ plus plus if you had a PC. Uh-huh. Anyway, so I watched it back then. No, no memory of it at all. But my memory of it was that this is basically, it's kind of like a toothless lib movie, basically envisioning what would happen if George W. Bush was assassinated. And the film's ultimate thesis was it really didn't have much more to say than um, it would be bad. (laughs) Yeah, It's the Patriot Act all over again. There would be a further crackdown on civil liberties. What I forgot was that this is a responsible film about the death of George W. Bush. This is a respectable movie. This is the kind of movie that, I don't know, let's say you were on that jury at the Toronto Film Festival. You would say, no, 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 no. This movie earns the right to deal in this subject matter because it weighs all sides. You know, this morning, a colleague introduced me to a phrase that I think really applies to this movie and to so many other things. This movie engages in so much nuance mongering. (laughs) It is a fundamentally conservative text, a fundamentally reactionary movie, which tries to kind of bury that in all of this sort of equivocation and equal opportunity offender stuff. In the most lib way possible, it both kind of endorses, you know, neocon narratives after 9-11, the most kind of hysterical, you know, hippie punching porn, like early in the movie, there's scenes of cops just like brutalizing anti-war protesters who are invariably, if they're not Arab Americans with Iraqi flags or whatever, they're like people with piercings and tattoos and stuff like that. And that's 100% in the movie so that like the worst people alive can get off to it. 100%. But then in Act 3 especially, it takes this very lib turn where it's sort of like, oh, but then there was excess and, you know, the the admitted, you know, Dick Cheney overreached and all this kind of stuff. And who did it hurt? It, uh, It hurt the troops. It hurt the troops. <laughs> right. So this movie, I think, very... Uh, we actually like the troops more than them because we don't want to hurt them. Right. So th- this movie came out in 2006. Importantly, it's set in 2007. So its its fictional universe is in the future. And it's kind of saying, like, look, this could happen. But it came out in 2006, which is very important. Uh, 2006 is the year that the Democrats took back the House, won this big victory in the midterms, basically because of, you know, opposition to the war on terror and, you know, how the war in Iraq was going specifically, but triangulated uh, like crazy on all of their anti-war positions. And, you know, liberalism in this time or, you know, mainstream liberalism, obviously lots of exceptions. 
pivoted very hard to the, what is always sort of the, the first phase of a liberal anti-war narrative and very much was in the Bush years, which is you can't really criticize the war directly. I mean, you can't say the president had absolutely no right to do this. This was criminal. We should not be brutalizing people abroad. We should not be invading other countries. The president lied, etc. The opposition has to be sort of cloaked in this very equivocating stuff that, it, you know, is often borrowing from conservative frames anyway. So as you just said, it's like, look at how this is hurting the troops. We actually love the troops harder. So the film kind of, you know, includes that among all kinds of stuff that is basically just regurgitating the most absolutely hysterical, fascistic stuff that was in the air after 9-11. I mean, those opening stanzas of the film where there's people protesting, you know, it's just anti-war demonstrators and stuff like that. And then it's just this cavalcade of fictional Bush administration advisors being like, you know, uh, we support people's right to protest, but this this was a protest with violent intent. You know, there was hatred for the president, all this kind of stuff. Right. So I'll try to describe the narrative of the film. It is a mockumentary style movie using a lot of trickery of manipulating news footage to look like the story that they're telling, you know, Forrest Gump style. In fact, there's one very funny scene where Dick Cheney is, is delivering a eulogy for somebody and then they... Well, they, he's delivering Bush's eulogy. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. The original footage, he's delivering the eulogy for God knows who it is. But then they adjust his lips <laughs> to say George Bush, and it looks like on Conan O'Brien when they used to like take just still photos of people and superimpose people's lips moving. Man, that was the only laugh this film got out of me. It was so funny because the oblique compliment everybody was trying to give this film, like people were, you know, in reviews where people are, you know, giving something like two stars and they're reaching for something positive to say about it. And they say like, oh, it's technically adept or whatever. That's what everybody said about this movie. And it's like, it's not technically adept. I mean, all the technical adeptness such as it is with, you know, manipulating footage and stuff, because the events in the film are entirely fictional, all of the stock footage looks like stock footage. It's so utterly generic. Like, there, I guess actually I lied before because there was another thing that got a laugh out of both of us, which is... Where there was like a forensics guy talking to the camera, giving this very serious monologue about forensics and how they're you know not as reliable as people think they are and all this kind of stuff. And then it's panning through what's supposed to be like a lab, yeah. um, which looks like it could have been shot in a high school like laboratory or something. Yeah, that came on the screen and one of us said like, oh yeah, there's the lab. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you, it looks like just off screen, you know, a bunch of teens are making like a volcano that's going to bubble over <laughs> or something. And then there's another another part like a minute later where there's this montage of like guys looking serious in very serious rooms with very serious ties on and like blackboards that are like those FBI ones that have like a pyramid of names on them and again it could just be anything I mean you know that's one of the reasons why this movie is so bad because you see those rooms those like rooms of you know government people with bald spots and 30 pounds overweight and like bad suits and they're sitting at a desk and they're in front of like a chalkboard or something and they're, they're making they're making the serious decisions they're they're having the emergency meeting to decide what's going to be done about the death of this president and the movie has absolute reverence for these rooms and these people this is a movie called death of a president for god's sake go all out go balls to the wall like have a little less reverence for all this bullshit <laughs> 
But I mean, if it had less reverence, it wouldn't have won that prize at the Toronto Film Festival because, you know, the, the people on that jury were able to say, ah, but th- this is a responsible film, you know? So to summarize the plot or, or finish... Oh, yes, please. <laughs> just, it can be done very quickly. I mean, this film has three acts. The pacing of this film is just extraordinarily bad. Well, there's not a lot in it. <laughs> I mean, it's 95 minutes. You've got... 20 minutes of content here tops yeah so for the for act one which yeah is about 20 minutes long uh george bush shows up in chicago the presidential motorcade is taking him to a speech he's going to give at the economic club of chicago or something you know there's a bunch of uh talking heads some of whom are security guys it's very give me shelter-esque you know they're like oh there was just something in the air oh they're, yeah you see all the crowds outside they're... protesting and it's like altamont yeah, yeah it's like oh there was a hatred in the air and just it's just people with signs that say like stop the war and no no blood for oil and that kind of stuff and then we see stock footage of george w bush speaking at speaking at some event that you know they've made to look yeah, like it's the, it's the economic club yeah, in chicago yeah. he's he's doing some just bullshit pablum and he's, he's, he's doing some jokes he's doing some cracks he's like you know this guy here and i uh, we both agreed on the same philosophy uh we we married up <laughs> and then it cuts to it's not even supposed to be funny it cuts to one of the talking head interviews you know, one of George Bush's uh, right-hand it's a people. Spe- speech writer. And, yeah. she, and she says, you know, Karl Rove always felt the president shouldn't tell jokes, but but I felt the president should tell jokes. And that sounds funny <laughs> because the jokes that we see him telling are so lame. They're so boilerplate. <laughs> Sub-Rotary Club jokes. <laughs> but the movie actually wants us, it's, it's addressing a primarily liberal audience and it wants that liberal audience to understand, no, 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 George Bush is actually very charismatic. Uh, he's very He's very warm and he's very enjoyable on stage. And and this is why people like him, and he is not. Yeah, can I can I just say, watching this, I mean, this was the most. I mean, Bush is barely in this movie, right? Okay, he's in it. Well, we had a lot of him at the front. Yeah, he's he's the, yeah. The Bush content is very front end loaded in this movie. It's maybe you get like you know five minutes of him speaking, but even that's maybe generous. I had not listened to you know more than like a ten second clip of George Bush. I mean, since two thousand and eight. Probably, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I've read a lot about George Bush, have not listened to him, have not watched clips of him. Not that I can remember anyway, not for years. And I'd forgotten just how kind of stilted and affected his speaking style. was. Well, he does this thing where he speaks, where he over enunciates every word. Yeah, you're going to stop the terrorists wherever they lurk, you know, like that kind of thing, while always like raising his hand as if to dot every single word he says. Yeah, really, really bad. So he gives this speech and, you know, a bunch of his advisors are popping up and they're saying, you know, they're saying stuff like, you know, the president was getting a lot of pushback on his economic policy, but, you know, we were convinced and he was convinced as well that uh, we had to persevere and the policy was correct. No word on what the policy is. Doesn't matter. So then, you know, Bush finishes the speech. The people are still protesting outside. A security guy basically advises him, you know, don't go out there, sir. But, you know, guess what? George Bush and the security guy very weepily explains, you know, but he, he wanted to talk to the people. He, he wouldn't take no for an answer. He had to meet the people. So George Bush goes out and meets the people and then he gets shot in, you know, I mean, in the scene that should have been the key scene of the movie, should have had the maximum kind of dramatic impact. Very bland because, of course, they're not actually going to show George Bush getting shot. You don't see anything happen at all. It's just kind of chaos, which I guess they would have defended on the grounds that if this did happen or had happened, happened this is what you'd see on the news just confusion chaos whatever i moved my hands along the president's body to see where he had been hit he was bleeding from his chest and he was having trouble breathing so i tried to make sure that i could keep the airway passage open 
And then act two is a very boring procedural with absolutely no dramatic tension at all. Because don't forget, the movie is called Death of a President, right? We know what's going to happen. Even in the first act, you know, we're building up to an event that we know is going to happen. The film has completely expended anything novel or interesting or unique about itself. And you also know what's going to happen even before you walk into the theater Sorry, that's funny. Walk, imagine walking into the theater to see this movie. But anyway, well, you did. Uh, no, I, I watched it in my dorm oh, yeah, room true, as true. I carefully explained with my thrilling anecdote about having that file sharing service. So, so it tries to spin a little more dramatic yarn out of you know Bush fighting for survival, and you know this is where the film again just can't resist. You know, this deep reverence. This for, movie loves Bush. Yeah, loves I couldn't George Bush. It. So they, they actually, there's actually a scene where a doctor comes out and in the most treacly way is talking about how, well, folks, the prognosis is good. Um, the doctors are telling us that uh, they've never seen a heart this strong in, in, a, in a man of his age. So the prognosis is good. Yeah, And then, of course, like, you know, 10 minutes later or whatever, he dies. Now, this is the part of the movie where you're looking at me and saying, I thought you said this was a liberal movie. Like, we're not seeing anything liberal, but... But, I mean, it's a liberal movie because it's about the death of George W. Bush. And the only way for these liberal filmmakers to justify that premise is to depict Bush as adoringly as they possibly can. Yeah, Bush is very much a martyr. And, I mean, the film amazingly presents Bush as a kind of moderate figure. Like, he was only doing phase one of the War on Terror, and that was making people mad. But then Dick Cheney then introduces Patriot Act number three. Presumably, I mean, off screen, I I can only assume with the very enthusiastic support of Joe Biden, who only criticized it for not going further. Well, the film does say that it passed Congress unanimously. And Patriot Act three, yeah, you know, further crackdown on civil liberties. The movie spends less time on this than I expected it to. I mean, if this movie were good, it would spend more time on just the frenzy that would erupt after the death of the president. Like, you would get a sense, I mean, it would be a satire, essentially, on what happened to American culture and politics after 9-11. You know, that psychosis that swept the country for the subsequent 10 years. But the problem is, this movie is an actual product of that psychosis, so it can't step outside it and see it clearly. Right. So it kind of uh, limply gestures at the idea that, you know, Dick Cheney uh, engages in kind of serious overreach. The the authorities end up pinning the crime, pinning the assassination on, you know, some just some random guy of Arab descent. First, they try to claim that it's a state-sponsored assassination uh, ordered by the Syrian government at the highest levels because Cheney wants to use it as a pretext to attack Syria. He realizes he can't sell that, so they kind of blame it on this one. And by the way, that's funny. It's funny that they didn't go further with that premise. I mean, this is a fantasy movie. Wouldn't it be a better premise if Dick Cheney actually led the country into war using the death of the president as a flimsy justification? Well, I mean, they used 9-11 as a justification to go into Iraq. Exactly. But but that's why this movie is so ineffective as satire or social commentary, because it's essentially saying, oh, but no, we have a system of checks and balances that we're able to prevent something catastrophic like going to war under false pre chances from happening (laughs) so then inevitably the film you know it limply flails one last time and there's this whole other plot which you know at this point in the film i turned to will and i said the film has no right to inflict kind of new characters and like a whole new plot. Why does it think it has the capital to do this, you know, this far into Act 3? So it turns out that um, a guy we've briefly seen earlier in the film who is a veteran, 
who gets hassled by the police. They they pull him over and arrest him in Chicago for no reason as a suspect in part of the overreaction after uh, the shooting. He's referred to the death of his brother, David. That hasn't really been substantiated. And then right at the end of the film, turns out that his brother, David, was also a troop. He was killed in Iraq near Mosul when an IED exploded underneath his, uh, his Humvee and flipped it over. He died. This is all rammed into about, I want to say, five minutes. It turns out that this drove their father to suicide. uh, And then they later discovered that actually their father was the one who assassinated George Bush out of kind of revenge for his son's death. Looks like the chickens are coming home to roost. So at, at its conclusion, the film is very much attempting to synthesize its kind of, I don't know, more liberally encoded and its more overtly reactionary encoded elements. It tries to create sort of dramatic tension and emotional release out of the fact that they're keeping this wrongfully accused guy uh, in prison. We see his uh, sister or, or wife. You know, she's one of the talking heads. This guy's father is alleged to have uh, done the assassination uh, his reason for stepping forward and, and revealing uh, his father to have been the perpetrator is that he doesn't like the fact that there's an innocent man suffering in prison. So that's the lib side of what it does. The other side is that a bunch of other talking heads appear to tell us that uh, the hatred in the air that was emanating from the protests gave the shooter license to do this that day. So the film is not exactly overt or explicit in this conclusion, But like all kind of equal opportunity offender movies, it really defaults more towards the reactionary side of things. It's so funny that in the year 2006, the movie's ultimate thesis is Iraq war protesters have gone too far. And this message presumably played to like an adoring crowd at the Ryerson Theater at the Toronto International Film Festival for an audience of well-heeled liberals. But you know what gets me about the film is is how eerily plausible it is. It's like (laughs) a year from now, these anti-Iraq protests like <laughs> they really could reach this level i mean right now in the year 2006 they're of course being cordoned off into these secluded free speech areas two blocks away from whatever the speaking engagement is but what if what if magically all of a sudden the protests became 10 times larger and were allowed to get near the venue it's funny that this movie to justify its vision like to justify its eerie plausibility the movie just has to like make up a completely fictional having no bearing to reality scenario and then say well yes this this could happen it's funny what you know one of the other things we found where people were trying to find something nice to say about it when we were going back through the reviews was people tried to write that uh, you know if nothing else it's just an interesting who done it <laughs> And it's not. I mean, at no (laughs) level does this film succeed. There's no dramatic tension. There's no nothing. Politically, it's bad. Everything about it is limp. It doesn't believe in itself enough to really let its reactionary side breathe. Just embrace the most libidinal and reactionary stuff. I mean, those frames early in the film where the cops are beating up the hippies, like that should have just been the whole movie. And then at least it would have been like a hateful reactionary film with possibly some kind of dramatic uh, potential or something. Wouldn't you have rather watched The Dark Knight tonight? Shouldn't we have just watched that instead? Wouldn't that have been so much more fun? You know, I haven't seen that film i don't think since uh since i saw it in theaters when it came out when it came out i was actually quite a dissident about it i was telling everyone i didn't think it was any good back when people were saying it was the best movie of all time i was much mocked and maligned not unlike the anti-war left after (laughs) 9-11 see you next time folks
Don't be long, yeah!